Welcome to Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint, and I'm delighted to have as our guest today a very interesting young man, Xavier Boffer, who's the executive director of the Samuel Griffith Society. And our subject today is Australia as the founders intended. That is the founders who put together the constitution and united our country. Xavier became the executive director in 2020. Before that, he'd been a parliamentary advisor to the shadow attorney general, and he'd also been on the staff of a member of the American Congress in the congressional office. He's now published and quoted regularly in all of the serious media of Australia, that is print and radio and television. He has a BA and Dr. Juris from the University of Melbourne, postgraduate degree from the same university, and he studied at the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. So he's a very well qualified young man. Uh, may I begin by welcoming you and uh, asking you, Xavier, who was Sir Samuel Griffith? the society of which you're the executive director and is obviously named after him. Who was he? Well, thank you, David, and it's wonderful to be on your show and thank you for the very kind words of introduction and thank you for the invitation. Um, so Samuel Griffith was many things, uh, but for our purposes, he was the primary author of our constitution, the Commonwealth Constitution, and also served as the nation's first Chief Justice for um, a period of about 15 years. So he was instrumental in creating and defining the system of government that has served Australia so well over the last 120 odd years. Well, he was extraordinary. And what's the mission of the society after which he's named? What, what is its purpose? Well, the society exists to promote greater understanding and discussion of the Commonwealth Constitution and the federal system of government that it creates, and also of the virtues of both the Constitution and that system of government. So we do that by holding annual conferences, by hosting papers from distinguished academics and legal scholars, from politicians, from jurists, and from uh, preeminent lawyers and other such figures um, into areas of constitutional and legal significance. Well, thank you for that explanation. And I should, I should make an admission. I'm on the board of the Samuel Griffith Society, so uh, it would be misleading for me uh, not to tell listeners and viewers. I, I think our federation was quite extraordinary. And I just want to quote from two of the founders, uh, Sir John Quick and Sir Robert Garron, who wrote, never before have a group of self-governing, practically independent communities, who without any external pressure of any kind, deliberately chosen of their own free will to put aside their provincial jealousies and come together as one people, from a simple intellectual and sentimental conviction of the folly of disunion and the advantages of nationhood. They say that was never before. And I think that's perfectly true. I think also we could say never since. 
Federations are usually formed because of some threat, threat of war, for example, that sort of thing. This was done not for any of those reasons, just for the sense that it would be a folly not to be a nation. Uh, what do you think of that, Xavier? Well, I think that that's something that makes Australia quite unique. We have one of the longest surviving and most stable democracies in the world. And also we have one of the longest surviving and most stable constitutions. And I, I think that that's no coincidence. I think our constitution is as a document that um, outlines how Australia is to be governed, uh, an incredible uh, advantage that we have compared to other nations. And I think that that is thanks in large part to the genius of Sir Samuel and the other drafters of the constitution. And I think that the vision that they outlined for the nation is one that has served us very well and made us incredibly prosperous and peaceful. And the, it has some very unique things which you don't find with other constitutions. And one is that, uh, and I think it comes from the Corowa plan, that is that the people were involved from the beginning to the end. They were involved in the election of the convention. They were involved in actually approving the constitution. And I think it was the first constitution to be actually approved by the people. Even the Swiss wasn't approved by the people, extraordinarily so. Uh, and I think it's also extraordinary how quickly it was done once the, once the Corowa plan was in place. Is that your impression too? Yes, I think that one of the remarkable things about our constitution, and I think that there are very few others that uh, could say this about their constitutions, um, is that the Australian people were heavily involved in the process of the debate and drafting and then adoption of the constitution. Um, and were, I think all evidence indicates, quite well versed and, and quite literate in terms of, of the provisions that were proposed to be included in the constitution and what that would mean for the government of the new states and for the Commonwealth. So I think that um, our constitution, unlike some others across the globe, um, has the advantage of being endorsed by the people and um, I think through our referendum process um, continues to have uh, this unique advantage that everything that goes into it um, goes in only with the consent of the people. Yes, the, the story is very interesting, isn't it, that after the first convention, after they drafted the constitution and uh, sent it back to the colonial parliaments, what we would call the state parliaments, the politicians all bickered among themselves and disagreed with one another as to what the, should be in the constitution, I think it became pretty clear that if it were left to the state politicians, they were called colonial politicians at the time, but they were effectively self-governing, uh, we probably would not be one country now if it were just left to the politicians. And it was really that, that conference at Corowa where Sir John Quick, who was one of the great founders of the Constitution, he, he moved a motion. It was a private conference, a conference of people interested in these matters, and he moved a motion, did he not, there to what should happen in the future is that the, the future conventions should be elected rather than just nominated, and that once they'd settled on the Constitution, it should be circulated for comment and then put to a referendum by the people in each of the states. That, that was a quite remarkable 
process once it was adopted, was it not? Mm. And I think uh, it it fits within the broad history of Australia as uh, a pioneer uh, as a democracy uh, across the, the globe. Um, many great democratic innovations originated here in Australia, and I think that is to our great um, benefit. But also, equally, I think that um, the Westminster tradition that we inherited and the inspiration that the founders drew from Washington um, together have created a very strong underpinning um, that has allowed um, for a very stable system of government that has promoted democracy and promoted social cohesion. I think that's something that we need to always uh, strive to preserve and to foster because it's something that makes Australia so very unique. Yes, it's a great pity, and I think your, your organisation and you yourself are going to correct this. It's a great pity that this isn't taught in the schools, that the students of today don't realise what a tremendous asset that process was. Because uh, once it started, once it started, and uh, the, the convention met again, it was elected from a number of states, not all states agreed to do that, but uh, it was mainly elected, a very effective convention. And uh, they, they did what uh, was recommended at Corowa. They then circulated it for comment to the state parliaments, the colonial parliaments, and also to the people. And there was a tremendous interest in it, enormous number of submissions. And uh, eventually it came back and they then, the final version was then under the agreement submitted by all the states to their people in referendums. And there had to be two because of the recalcitrance of uh, New South Welshmen. But uh, it, it was a very effective process. The extraordinary thing I find was that it is all done in four years, including taking the constitution to London. They didn't have aeroplanes in those days to do that. They couldn't go by jet to London. They had to go by ship to London. Getting it through the British Parliament, having the Queen uh, proclaim it or be ready to proclaim it once the West Australians had decided, the whole process took four years. I find that extraordinary. What's your feeling about that, uh, Xavier? Uh, yes, I have to quite agree with you. I've just returned from a brief trip to London and I can say, even with our modern technology, it, it's quite a journey. I can't imagine um, the journey that it would have been uh, in those days. Um, so it is quite, I think, a remarkable feat um, that they accomplished. And I think, as I say, it is a testament to the process, um, not only the goodwill of those involved, but the, the strength of the process, the democratic elements and underpinnings of that process. And also, I think, as I say, um, the tradition that we inherited um, I think gave us the foundational underpinnings to be able to do so because we had a strong appreciation and value for um, democratic ideals and also for uh, principles such as the rule of law and uh, separation of powers. And so we were starting, I suppose, from an advantaged position because of uh, that tradition that we inherited. Well, let's go to the early years after Federation, where I think uh, in many ways one could refer to them as the golden years of Federation because uh, I think you and I would agree that that was the time when the Constitution was interpreted and applied as it was intended up to uh, a certain case, which you'll no doubt tell us about. What, what's your feeling about those years? 
the first years, the first two decades, I suppose, after the adoption of the Constitution? Well, I think the remarkable and incredible thing about our early High Court, the Griffith Court, as it were, is that you had uh, it composed of three very eminent legal minds um, in Sir Samuel Griffith, uh, Sir Edmund Barton, our first Prime Minister, and uh, Richard O'Connor. And all three were heavily involved in the conventions, heavily involved in the process of drafting and debating the Constitution as it would eventually be adopted. And as I mentioned before, that um, Sir Samuel himself was heavily, heavily involved in producing the first draft of what would become the Constitution. He was its primary author. So you couldn't find a group of uh, jurists who were closer to the process of the creation and adoption of the Constitution than the ones that we did find. And so I think if you look at the early jurisprudence of the High Court, it gives an incredible insight into the intentions of the founders. And uh, I think in terms of our ability today to try and decipher what was intended uh, by the founders and by the Australian people in adopting the Constitution, I think there's no better guide than those early cases. Uh, but as you mentioned, things did take a bit of a turn, a quite a drastic turn uh, with the engineers case. Um, and the thing that I find quite remarkable about that is that um, essentially you have a situation in which due to the passage of time and uh, as a result of the, the passing of Sir Samuel and Sir Edmund and, and Richard O'Connor, that you have a, a new court comprised of a new set of judges, including two who also were involved in the convention debates, but on, I suppose, what you could describe as the losing side of the debates, Sir Isaac Isaacs and Sir Henry Higgins, um, who took positions to the convention debates, argued them quite forcefully, but ultimately uh, were on the minority side of the debate and therefore uh, lost out in those debates, who purely because of their ability to outlive their contemporaries had an opportunity to relitigate those debates, but this time not in a democratic forum, but on the High Court in their position as judges. And they took a very marked departure from the previous jurisprudence under the Griffith Court. Yes, uh, Sir Isaac Isaacs, uh, who, who became Chief Justice when he was at the convention, was really a strong centralist. He wanted to create Australia as a strong central state. Now, that would have never have got through. It, it, it went against uh, the wishes of those. Well, it didn't get through the convention, but I don't think it would have got through referendums. I don't think Australians were in any ways interested in having a strong central authority. They were happy with the federal authority. Now, uh, what the High Court developed uh, they developed uh, an implication in the Constitution, this is the first High Court, that is the reser reserved powers doctrine. And that essentially, as I understand, was that those powers not given to the Commonwealth were reserved to the states, which is obviously what the Convention did. In the American Constitution, they have the Tenth Amendment, which says the, effectively the powers not delegated to us, by the, to the United States by the Constitution, are reserved to the states or to the people. So there's a reserved powers doctrine written into the American Constitution, 
only when, the, when they met and adopted a series of amendments before the states would all, all of the states would agree to the constitution, all of the 13 states, we didn't put it in the constitution. Do you think we should have put the reserve powers doctrine into the constitution? Was that a mistake that the founders made? Well, I think that the reason they didn't do so is that it, it went without saying at the time. It was mm. so patently obvious to everyone involved in the process um, that that was an essential part of the bargain that was struck in federating. Um, and if you look at the convention debates, as uh, I did uh, when I was doing my law degree, um, you see quite clearly and expressly, particularly from the representatives uh, of the smaller states, Tasmania, South Australia, Queensland in particular, um, that it was an, an essentially non-negotiable for them that um, power be diffuse and that as much as possible be left in the remit of the states uh, to determine for themselves rather than centralised in Canberra. And I agree with you. I don't think, certainly at the conventions and, and I think or equally at the, at the referendums that followed, that we would have been able to adopt a constitution and federate had those uh, guarantees not been given during the convention debates. And you, we see them um, throughout the constitution in various provisions, guarantees to the states of certain protections, particularly to the smaller states. And I think this is an issue that um, is equally relevant today as it was then, because we have a situation where um, Melbourne and Sydney, uh, by virtue of their population, uh, if you were to look at Australia purely uh, on a person-to-person -person population level, dominate, completely dominate. And yet um, they have very different interests. People in Melbourne and Sydney have very different interests uh, to those even in regional areas of their own states, let alone in the smaller states. And they deserve uh, equal protection. It's interesting, isn't it, to look at the engineer's case, the facts of which uh, don't inter we haven't got time to go into here, but it's interesting to reflect on the fact that lawyers, obviously, uh, do the best they can for their clients. They don't uh, lie, as people assume they do. They don't lie. They, 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 the facts are as told to them by their clients, but they also argue the best case in law. The, the King's Council, they weren't Queen's Councils, they were King's Council as they are now. The King's Council who was leading in the engineer's case gave notice that he wished to challenge the reserved powers doctrine and uh, the High Court then adjourned as to whether they would give him leave to do that. It's interesting to reflect on the fact that that, that senior council, that uh, King's Council was Sir Robert Menzies. Who, who turned out to be a great, later on as a politician, a great federalist, but uh, there was uh, Robert Menzies as a, a brilliant King's Counsel taking that case. It's an interesting reflection, I think. Uh, there, there is one thing about referendums, and we're always chided by certain of my academic friends and others who complain that Australians have only and they quote the number, I've forgotten the precise number that, uh, of referendums, seven or whatever it is out of uh, 44, is the, name, the number's escaping me at the moment, and they complain that Australians will not approve referendums, and this is something which is coming up 
in the current voice referendum and it will come up again if they bring a second Republican referendum. Uh, do you feel the same that Australians are, are backward? Uh, they're living in a horse and buggy age and they're refusing to approve these referendums which are being put to them? Uh, not at all. I actually think that um, it's a credit to both Australians and also to the drafters of the Constitution that um, we haven't seen it as being necessary to change much about the Constitution. And I suppose for my part, and I know this would be the case for many, if not all, of the members of, of the Samuel Griffith Society, um, I tend to view any proposed change with a healthy degree of scepticism. I think you do need to make a positive case for any change. Yes. And I think that um, the reason, the foremost reason that there's a high threshold for any proposed change to the Constitution to surmount is that the Constitution has served us so well for so long. And as I mentioned before, we have one of the longest surviving constitutions, one of the most stable constitutions, one that has meant that as a country, we have been incredibly stable. We've had a very stable and a peaceful system of government. And that's led to immense prosperity for Australia and Australians um, that hasn't been seen perhaps anywhere else in the world. Um, and so I think that you want to be very careful not to disrupt the status quo there, given that it has served you so well. And, and for that reason, I think, although it might sometimes be necessary to change the constitution, um, it's a very, very high bar that has been set. And I think that any advocate for change needs to contend with that. Yes, we're, you're, you're absolutely right. We're one of the six or seven oldest continuing democracies in the world. That, that's quite a remarkable record for a country which is really so young to be one of the six or seven oldest continuing democracies in the world. Uh, I, I was looking at, uh, in preparation for this, to the comments of... Uh, of uh, some of the founders, and they said, we didn't put this, we didn't put this barrier. It's not an unreasonable barrier, it's just that it has to be approved nationally and in the majority of states. That, I don't think that's a, a, a harsh barrier, but they said, we didn't put this to stop change. It was to stop change in stealth, stop change in haste or stealth, and to, to uh, allow discussion, to encourage discussion until the point was reached that the people felt it was desirable, irresistible and inevitable that the change be made. I think that's a wonderful description, desirable, irresistible and inevitable. And I, th I think that's, uh, that's really what is important. But I, I did also, this was the time of the, uh, the Republic referendum, people, I was involved, I was national convener of Australian Constitutional Democracy. People came to me and said, well, what if we win this referendum and they hold another referendum? And I looked at the, the facts and I said, when I looked at the facts, I found that uh, the same question had been put more than once. In fact, the same question, essentially the same question, was put up to five times. And on every occasion, once the people said no, they always said no. So I, I calmed them and saying, well, don't worry too much. The indications are that when Australians say no, they mean no, and they will continue to say no. The extraordinary thing I found when I was looking at the list of questions that have been put 
to the people, I found that on a number of subjects relating to powers, it wouldn't be necessary to put them anymore because the High Court had effectively given those powers which were not state powers, they'd effectively allowed the Canberra to effectively control those powers. What, what, what do you think of that? I think sadly there is some truth to that and I think that um, what uh, our viewers and listeners um, should understand about the context uh, of the evolution of the uh, approach adopted by the High Court to the interpretation of the Constitution is that in the early years of uh, Federation and the Convention debates, uh, we were still quite a, a young nation um, and the colonies um, were still growing and evolving and our politics as a result was also um, evolving. And I think that um, one of the interesting observations I made as I was looking into this particular area um, at university was that the labour movement was still a fairly nascent political force in Australia around the time of the convention debates. And so it was not um, heavily represented in those debates. Um, but if you move forward about a decade, around the period of, of 1913, um, had become a more dominant political force and, and now since has been one of the two major dominant political forces in Australia. But the the observation I make is that the Labor movement broadly, and, and as a result, the Australian Labor Party, um, have never really bought into the idea of um, the federal compact and has always seemed to favour a more centralised uh, approach to power, um, which favours Canberra over the states. And so uh, around the time of the engineers case, there had been an, a series of efforts to tinker with the composition of the High Court in order to uh, affect that sort of change in approach to the interpretation of the Constitution. So um, the court was expanded from three uh, to seven uh, over two successive um, legislative changes instigated by um, political uh, figures uh, linked to the labour movement. And uh, there was an attempt, I suppose, if you will, I and mean, there's been some discussion in the United States recently about court packing. Um, there was effectively an attempt to do that in Australia. And it was quite controversial, and particularly at one stage, we had uh, the only person appointed to the High Court, Albert Piddington, who resigned his commission before taking it up because he viewed it as being uh, too politicised and controversial. And this, I think, this background is something that is very rarely discussed today. Very few people take an interest in it. But I think it goes to the heart of the issue is that one side of politics um, seems not to have bought into the bargain that was agreed uh, in uh, the process leading up to federation. Yes, uh, Xavier, I'm surprised that, uh, and I think the, the drafters did a wonderful job. It's not a perfect constitution. It was a very good constitution, though. I think uh, they would have known, they studied... Uh, they were very well aware of uh, British constitutional history, American constitutional history, because they took so much from the United States. And they were also very interested in Switzerland, because they borrowed the referendum from Switzerland. But when they were creating the High Court, I'm surprised that uh, they didn't take into account 
the complete disasters which had occurred in the United States. Dred Scott, for example, which in many, many say was the cause of the Civil War. Plessy and Ferguson, which, which entrenched after the Civil War segregation. These were not things about which the Americans could be proud and progressive Australians in the constitutional conventions. As most of them were more progressive in the sense of wanting equality between people. It's surprising that they didn't think of that in relation to the High Court. I, I have suggested, and I think that they could have thought of this, why not rotate the appointment of High Court judges between the states rather than leaving it just to Canberra? And the other thing was something that Charles Kingston, the Premier, they used to call them Prime Minister, the Premier of... Uh, South Australia brought to Canberra, not to Canberra, to Melbourne. And that was a proposal to extend who could initiate referendums. And he was going to suggest that the people also have the power to also initiate referendums, which would have made it very different. But uh, Deacon talked him out of it on the grounds of the responsible government would give you effectively the same, the same control over the politicians. Do, do you think... Uh, we, the founders may have made a mistake in, in leaving everything to, to the federal authorities concerning not only the numbers in the High Court, but also the appointment of judges in the High Court, and secondly, just giving a monopoly to Canberra in relation to starting referendums, initiating referendums. Uh, I think on the, on the first issue, um, I think that we do have quite a good system of um, judicial appointment, certainly where the, the federal judiciary is concerned. Um, it's not a perfect system, but I think very few systems um, can claim to be perfect. Um, but I do think as a starting point, it is a good system and it does allow for very robust consultation um, by a government that seeks to do so. Um, so I don't think that um, it's necessarily a problem or a fatal flaw uh, with our current system of judicial appointments. Um, but I think uh, in, in the case that, that I was talking about, um, the attempt by the then government was so uh, extreme uh, in terms of its efforts to, to distort or change the way that the Constitution was interpreted uh, that it failed precisely because we do have fairly robust systems. So the background being that the Fisher government first sought to extend the legislative power of the Commonwealth by proposing referendums that failed, were rejected by the people, and then decided, and I think it was Billy Hughes that may have been the political mastermind behind this effort, um, to then stack the court. But as I say, even that was met with very strong opposition from not only the legal profession, but also from the people. And that pressure is what led to Albert Pittington resigning in, in, in some quite controversial circumstances. So I think there are those safeguards or mechanisms in place to uh, curtail some of the worst abuses um, that are possible under our, our system. So I, I would say that as a, as a starting point. That all being said, I do think um, that it is to our nation's detriment that we haven't had a member of the High Court from uh, one of the small states such as South Australia. Um, and uh, I, I do think that it is an issue when the High Court or indeed um, any of our courts are dominated um, to an extreme by Sydney and Melbourne, because I, as I mentioned before, I think um, 
And as you said, equality is a fundamental principle upon which Australia was founded, and it's a fundamental um, governing principle of our politics. And that extends to the people in the smaller states just as equally as those in the more populous states. Uh, I think the second thing you, you mentioned was about a referendum and, and how they should be initiated. initiated. I think that, um, that, again, if the system as designed this, and the principle of responsible government being a, a central part of that system um, worked as intended, it wouldn't be an issue. I think Deakin is probably right about that. Um, and I, I don't think that um, a referendum, uh, referendums are things that should be entered into lightly. So I do see the merit in filtering that process through um, our parliament and our parliamentary representatives. That being said, though, um, it is a power that they need to exercise wisely. And if they don't, then I think the obvious recourse is for the people to vote them out. Yes. Uh, one, of the, one of the interesting things for constitutional monarchists is the, the, the advanced provision in Section 61, that's the executive powers of the Commonwealth, in which it stated that the, effectively it stated the, that the powers of the, the, the executive powers vested in the Crown and exercisable by the Governor General. And the, the fact that they, they directed in the Constitution that the powers would be exercised by the Governor General got around the, the problems, well not problems, but the practice which occurred, for example, in Canada, that you then had to have royal instructions telling the Governor General to, to exercise the powers himself and not refer everything to London. We had it in the Constitution, but we, we didn't notice it until the Queen's first visit and Sir Robert Menzies was Prime Minister and they, they had an opinion which said, well, certain things are not necessary because uh, the, these powers to exercise are already vested in the Governor-General. But that, that led the, the court, I think, in 1907 to say that the, the Governor-General, they said this unanimously, that the Governor-General was the constitutional head of the Commonwealth. Now that proved in the referendum to be a wonderful argument that we already had a head, a head of state in Australia. The Governor General was the head of state. This was very advanced and I, I found it interesting that there, there was no objection to this in the colonial office, no objection to it, to that provision in the debates which went on in the British Parliament. Do, do you also find that uh, similarly surprising? Well, I suppose it reflects on the level of um, trust that uh, was placed in uh, Australians um, at the time. Um, and I think um, the closeness of our two uh, nations uh, ever since has been, um, has been to both of our uh, great uh, advantages. And, and obviously this week we saw the, um, the formalisation of the AUKUS agreement between Australia and the United Kingdom and the United States. And I think that um, we share in a, a very rich uh, tradition. And um, as a result, we've benefited immensely. We, we get very um, preferential treatment um, from both the United Kingdom and the United States. And I think um, it's a reflection of the, the deep affection um, that I think flows both ways between um, our countries. So, um, Yes, I agree with you. It is a little bit surprising, but I think, as I say, it reflects upon the esteem and the, the, the trust that um, was uh, directed towards uh, Australians. 
Yes, it was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? Today you had these colonial premiers going to London with the constitution, taking it to the British Parliament and it going through pretty smoothly, apart from some relatively minor changes to the Privy Council provisions and I think shipping. Can we come to some contemporary issues? And uh, there's some cases in the High Court like uh, Love and uh, Montgomery, which you might like to comment on. Well, yes, I think um, uh, these are a series of cases that um, may have escaped people's attention during the pandemic years. Um, but first, you had in 2020 a decision handed down by the High Court in the Love case, um, which was quite extraordinary, I think. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that opinion. Um, many in the legal profession were quite surprised by um, the decision. And it was a very narrow decision, a bare majority, four to three, um, in which uh, there were some very forceful and powerful dissents, including by the Chief Justice, um, but which decided effectively um, that um, there is a new class of persons that are both non-citizens but also non-aliens. Um, and as a result of, of that new class, um, that the Commonwealth is restricted in the exercise of its power under Section 51 of the Constitution with respect to aliens. Um, and what practically that means is that uh, the Commonwealth is not empowered to, to make laws that um, enable it to deport certain non-citizens because of uh, their claim uh, to Aboriginal status, um, which is quite remarkable um, when you think about it, because it means that um, despite their not being Australian citizens, they have certain rights um, that are only afforded to Australian citizens. Uh, and I think that the, the arguments which underpin this decision some of them are very difficult to um, to penetrate. They they draw upon notions of spirituality and and connection to land um, that are quite um, quite theoretical. But when you look at the the facts of the case uh, and you look at the individuals uh, that are concerned, we're, we're talking about individuals who, um, first of all, have serious criminal convictions. But second of all, um, we're talking about individuals who. Um, don't necessarily claim to have direct descent from Aboriginal um, people, uh, the Aboriginal people of, of Australia, certainly, and, um, and don't profess to have a, a particular um, connection to um, Aboriginal culture either. It, it's, quite, it's, quite, um, it's quite difficult to wrap your head around, I think. Yes, and this was a, a violent crime, was it not, that uh, the person had committed? He'd, he'd uh, served his sentence and, as is normal, the Crown would then, the government would then deport that person back to their homeland and the federal government was restrained from doing that. Now, this was the subject, not an appeal, but uh, the point, the question was to be raised again in another case, was it not? That is the case of Montgomery, where the same issue had arisen and uh, they wanted the High Court to look at the question again, did they not? Now, what has happened there? Yes, that's right. And um, and obviously, this decision in, in Love um, 
had immediate consequences because there are a small number, uh, but a number nonetheless of individuals who were implicated. Um, and we had a case of a, a New Zealand national who um, had claimed to be adopted by an Aboriginal tribe um, in Australia, but had no um, Aboriginal ancestry in Australia to, to, to speak of, or certainly didn't claim to. And, and, and so the, the issue came up again in this case as to whether this uh, new concept of this class of non-citizen aliens applied to someone like him. And the Commonwealth had sought to, um, to essentially to challenge the decision in love. And there had been, um, with the passage of time, some changes to the composition of the High Court. So you effectively had a, a court that was going to make a fresh opinion. And um, at the very last minute, the court, the hearings had been conducted, several months had passed, and the court's decision, as I understand, must have been imminent. And then we had the federal election and a change of government, and the new uh, Commonwealth Attorney General decided to withdraw, um, which meant that the High Court was unable to render its decision, which, again, I think was quite remarkable. And I think um, it goes against many conventions um, in Australia that... Um, Certainly, if a case is before the courts um, and um, a, a party doesn't like the outcome that it thinks it's going to get, it's not proper. It's an abusive process, or it could be an abusive process, to, to, to try and um, prevent that decision from being rendered um, through some procedural trip. But that's effectively what appears to have happened, that the Commonwealth decided, the new government decided that it didn't like where it thought the High Court was going to go with the decision, so it withdrew. Um, I think that's quite remarkable and, and surprised many in the legal community. Yes, it's obviously a, a matter which should be reviewed because it's such an extraordinary decision. And uh, no doubt this case is being raised, as, it, uh, as I've seen it being raised, in the debate over the voice referendum, and people will be arguing about the role of the High Court in relation to the interpretation of the provision which may well go into the Constitution. Can we come uh, to the Samuel Griffith Society? There, under your, your role there, you've achieved something really remarkable. That is, you've got uh, uh, deductions. People can now claim deductions for monies given to the society to advance its work, which is a great advantage. And you've also got an interesting, fascinating agenda for this year and beyond. Would you like to tell us a little about what is happening in the Samuel Griffith Society, Xavier? Certainly. Um, we have continued to expand our research activities. I mentioned, I think, uh, earlier in the program that uh, we have always held an annual conference and invited papers to be given uh, by a wide variety of very interesting speakers, and that continues. Um, but what we've also started to do in recent years is to produce more original research um, looking at uh, contemporary constitutional and legal issues. And so we've begun to make submissions to, to government and to other um, public inquiries on such issues. And that's been made possible by, uh, in large part, um, by the support of our members and and other supporters, and, and as you mentioned, um, the society now has deductible gift recipient status, so um, contributions to the society are tax deductible. Um, so that has enabled us to greatly expand our work in 
in trying to promote awareness of the Constitution and its virtues. Um, this year, we'll be holding our conference in Melbourne uh, on the weekend of the 25th through the 27th of August. And I expect that uh, amongst a range of issues, the current referendum proposal um, will be a topic of great interest uh, at that conference. Um, and registrations for that conference are now open via our website, samuelgriffiths.org.au. Um, we'll also continue to promote discussion of the referendum and other current issues, um, and uh, that may take the form of various public forums um, or symposia on these issues, and, and we'll have more to announce in uh, the coming weeks and months about some of those activities as well. One matter which you may consider in your role, in, in addition to making submissions, is um, something which happened when I was uh, chairman of the press council. And the case came before the High Court, Longy and the ABC, and it related to freedom of speech, freedom of political speech. So we decided, uh, I persuaded my colleagues on the press council, that we should put in, or seek to put in, because uh, it hadn't been done before, in this sense, uh, the, an amicus curiae, a friend of the court brief. And uh, it had been done in relation to people specifically interested with a legitimate interest in a person in a case, but not by an organisation. And the High Court uh, agreed to my surprise. So we were allowed to put in a, a submission, which was uh, about uh, the freedom of political speech in the Constitution. High Court didn't agree with what we proposed, but they did have the great courtesy of, uh, of allowing uh, us not only to put that in, but also to address the court briefly on its meaning. Uh, the, other, the other matter I think we, Australia has a problem, isn't that people, I think generally, mainly because of the educational system and media reporting on this, don't see any advantages in federation. They see this as a large number of politicians. And you often see people saying, well, why don't we abolish the states? Which would be, of course, a disaster. But th there, is, there is evidence, very strong evidence. I, I think uh, it was shown in a paper by Professor Anne Toomey and, uh, and, and an economist relying on OECD evidence, which shows that uh, you get a, an advantage of 10% in the gross domestic product if you're a federation by having governments at a lower level closer to the people handling matters, you get this great advantage. Is this not uh, something that Australians really need to have put before them? The problem is, as I see it, whenever there's a problem in Australia, the, the usual solution proposed is first, throw a lot of government money at it. Second, have a uniform solution across Australia. So that if that uniform solution is wrong, as it so often is, then you don't get the advantage of competitive federalism. This is a problem, isn't it? I certainly think it is. And I think that um, one of the great advantages of federalism, and we have seen it play out in Australia, and certainly you see it play out in the United States as well, is that you have policy competition or policy federalism uh, between the various states so that different state governments are at liberty to uh, choose to approach similar problems in different ways. And then you see um, th 
through this sort of um, process that uh, certain solutions may work and others may not. And, and, and as a result, you get better policy outcomes. I think we, we had a paper at our 2019 conference in Melbourne um, by former Victorian Premier John Brumby, um, which explored this issue. And, um, and certainly there's been a lot of work done in this space. And I think that there are many examples that we could point to. I think death taxes or death duties being one, um, once Queensland abolished those, you had uh, a movement of people to Queensland and, and, and as a result, um, the other states followed. Um, I think the pandemic uh, is another example where there was some policy federalism, although through the national cabinet process, there was a, a degree of uniformity. But I think you know, I'm a Victorian. You look at the way that the Victorian government responded to COVID, the way that it uh, put people of Victoria and certainly Melbourne through very long and very strict lockdowns, which uh, didn't seem to do much to stop the spread of COVID in the long run. Um, and I you know, don't want to get into the merits of um, that, that policy as such, but what I do want to point out is that um, those policies weren't necessary in places like Western Australia and Queensland. And they were able to adopt different approaches that didn't require um, them to lock down and to um, adopt such strict and harsh measures, um, certainly for, for the periods of time that we did in Victoria. Um, so I think the people in those states would certainly be, um, although they might not realise it, um, the beneficiaries of policy federalism um, because they had a very different experience. I would agree, uh, and particularly in relation to your mentioning death duties, I'm old enough to remember the impact of death duties when I was an article clerk in a law firm. And you could see that, uh, for example, when the, the senior person in a farming family or in a small business passed away, not only they, were they put in grief, they would suddenly receive a bill for something like 30% or more of the value of the estate. Now, when you have a farm, for example, where do you get 30% of the value of the farm? You destroy the farm or you take on an enormous mortgage which cripples the family. It's a, it was a terrible tax. For those who think, and there are a number of people, I see letters in the paper saying we've got to have death duties. Well, the very rich manage to minimise death duties because they can afford very good lawyers and accountants and they can move their money around the world. It's, uh, and the very poor, of course, don't have estates, but it's the middle class. It's ordinary people, small business people, farmers, professional people and the like, who would suffer terribly from death duties. And it was a wonderful thing that Sir Joby Elke Peterson did. Uh, and I can remember the, the stir, how it stirred people. He did it against the advice, not only of the public service, but against the advice of his own treasurer. But when he brought it in, elderly people started moving to Queensland because for some reason they didn't want to leave a third of their estate to, to the government. And there was also a federal tax as well. There was a, not only was there a big state tax, there was a federal tax as well. So they really cleaned up in relation to the death and it really affected some people really terribly. It was a very harsh tax and I say good riddance to... Uh, to death duties, it was a terrible thing. But 
Xavier, we also have the problem, don't we, in this country, that our federation, at least financially and from the point of view of powers, but certainly financially, fiscally, from the point of view of taxes, is probably the worst in the world among comparable countries in that the Commonwealth takes an extraordinary amount of the total taxes in this country. Uh, if you go to countries like Switzerland or Germany or the United States or Canada, you don't have the Commonwealth taking 80% of taxes and then handing back a proportion of this to the states and telling the states how to spend it. This, it's not working as a federation should work. Isn't that, isn't that a serious problem that we have in this country, which is something very high on the agenda of, uh, of the Samuel Griffith Society? Uh, certainly. And uh, I think that that vertical, vertical fiscal imbalance between the Commonwealth and the states goes to the heart of many of the issues that we have today. Um, I think the case is in most, if not all the states, that uh, half or more of their budgets are um, funds that they receive from Canberra. Although uh, it is somewhat perverse that um, through the policy of horizontal fiscal equalisation with respect to the GST, um, a lot of the money that is given back to the states is money that they raise through the GST and then hand directly to the Commonwealth. So I think there's a, a, there's a huge um, loss there just in the inefficiency of the system um, before you even get into um, some of the, the policy issues. Um, it's a system that I think um, w is clearly not intended or not contemplated by the, the founders uh, in drafting the constitution. It's a system that I think that we developed in some ways by accident as a consequence of, of um, steps taken during um, World War I and World War II. And um, I think that we should be having a conversation about how we address these issues and some serious discussion of um, economic reform to federal-state relations, I think, would benefit the country immensely. I think you're absolutely right, Xavier. And you can see what's happening. The Commonwealth, by pushing its nose into state matters, isn't dealing with properly with Commonwealth matters. They're trying to also deal with matters which are meant for the states. And I think a classical example is education, where in the New South Wales election, one leading candidate, Mark Latham, is saying that the standards in Australia, in New South Wales, are falling at a greater rate than anywhere else in the world. And uh, so you've got both, both state and uh, states and the Commonwealth trying to handle education and the standards falling and more money going into it. I, I, saw, I saw some calculations done that this cost of both trying to handle the same issues, that the, the cost is something like 11% of GDP. That's an extraordinary amount of money, if that's correct. And we're losing that, it's, it is said, because of this, this uh, vertical fiscal imbalance, what they've done with the GST. The GST, as you, as you know, doesn't go to the people who pay it. They've then put in a, a socialist provision which gives it to the states which are wor working or performing poorer and taking away from the states that are performing better. 
This, this all seems to me to be going against what our founders intended and what the people approved when they allowed for the establishment of the colonists. What do you think, Xavier? I think that's quite right. And, and I must say, as a Victorian, I think that we often have, have gotten the short end of the bargain um, <laughs> when it comes to these issues. I think um, Victoria historically has enjoyed a very high standard of service delivery, um, but increasingly we're paying more to subsidise uh, service delivery in other states. But I don't want to make this a sort of a state versus state issue. I think that essentially every state um, would benefit from a readjustment of um, the current arrangements. And I think that every state would be advantaged by being able to uh, to make advantage of its own unique um, assets because the states have uh, very different economic conditions, very different economies, different natural resources to exploit, and um, and I think that if they were un if they were enabled and encouraged, incentivised rather than de incentivised by the current arrangements to unlock those uh, advantages. Uh, that everyone would be better off. Um, on the issue that you mentioned before about education, I think health is similar as well. I mean, we have this vast bureaucracy in Canberra uh, in the departments of education and health, and yet um, it's the states that run the schools, it's the states that run the hospitals, you know, with, with, with I think, one exception in Tasmania. But you see the point that you have this huge uh, army of bureaucrats um, regulating and, and overseeing uh, but they're very, very distant from the people who use the services. And I think that distance um, not only creates inefficiency, but it also means that policymaking is compromised. Um, when the people making the decisions don't have to live with the consequences and don't have the sort of ear to the ground that people closer to the, to the, um, the service delivery have, I think that their ability to make the right decisions is limited. Some years ago, uh, under a different hat, we had to put in a submission to the federal government related to Aboriginal recognition. It was Australians for constitutional monarchy and uh, Tony Abbott had delivered the Neville Bonner oration in which he called on ACM to support the constitutional recognition of the Indigenous people. So we put in a submission and what I, I had to do the vote of thanks to Tony Abbott and uh, I could see, see there wasn't much support in the room for what he said, but also I knew that uh, ACM as an organisation would probably not wish to get involved in the issue. Uh, we, we said that uh, this should really be handled by the people from the beginning. If you're going to raise the issues of recognition, for example, it would be better to put this before a convention, let the people make a decision on it and then a referendum. But uh, we said, well, it would be pointless to a waste to have a convention just on one issue. What we suggested was that after so long, from the date of the first uh, conventions, and the fact that there had been reviews of the constitution by eminent lawyers and commissions and so on, wasn't it time for the Australian people to be given the opportunity in an elected convention to consider the constitution, to consider whether there should be some 
review of the constitution which could be put to the people. Do you think there's, it's time to allow the people of Australia to, in a convention, to consider some review of the constitution? Or is that something you'd prefer not to speak on, given your position? Uh, I can understand that it uh, could be something that uh, you couldn't really take a position on, but uh, do you see any, any value in a, a general review of the constitution? I think as a starting point, uh, my position is and, and will continue to be that, that we're very well served by the current constitutional arrangements, although I think that we would be better served by um, a return, if you will, uh, to the original intention of the founders and of the Australian people in, in ratifying the constitution. But for the most part, I think we're, we're quite well served. So um, I don't see a, an immediate or pressing need for a wholesale review of the Constitution, um, but I, I certainly think that it would be good for Australians to have uh, more discussion of the Constitution. I think greater awareness of the Constitution uh, would be to everyone's benefit. I, I, I would hope that in schools and at university people would have more opportunity to learn about our history and the Constitution and its virtues, and certainly uh, that's something that Samuel Griffith Society will continue to contribute towards. Well, I think that's a wonderful point on which we can conclude this interview. You've been very generous with your time, Xavier. You are doing a superb job. You've made significant differences and achievements. So I'd like to thank you, Xavier, for doing that and also making yourself available for this interview. This is uh, the program Save the Nation on ADH-TV, and I'm David Flint. Until next time.